Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Gregory Burns will join us to discuss what it's like to be a dog. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. the Grox Science Show. Well, do our dogs actually love us? Or is all the affection and tail wagging just an evolutionary response to gain more treats? Well, to find the answer to this, neuroeconomist at Emory University, Dr. Gregory Burns, explored what no one else thought to do before. He taught dogs to go into an MRI scanner completely awake. Results of the experiments and findings are explored in the forthcoming book, What It's Like to Be a Dog and Other Adventures in Animal Neuroscience. The author, Dr. Gregory Burns, is a distinguished professor of neuroeconomics at Emory University, where he directs the Center for Neuropolicy and Facility for Education and Research in Neuroscience. He's the author of several books, including the New York Times bestseller, How Dogs Love Us. And Professor Burns, we're very pleased to have you today on the Grok Science Show. Great to be here. Pleasure. Certainly a fascinating book you've written, What It's Like to Be a Dog. Before we start, maybe just how did you become interested in the general area of animal neuroscience? It really started about five or six years ago. And prior to that, I had studied just human brains, uh, looking at reward processes and how people make decisions. That's what neuroeconomics is. And what happened was the Bin Laden mission when I saw pictures of these military dogs jumping out of helicopters, and i probably the only person who thought this, but when I saw those pictures, I thought, you know, if a dog can be trained to jump out of a helicopter, why can't we train a dog to go in an MRI to see what she's thinking? Uh, obviously, it just seems like it. <laughs> uh, was it uh, a challenge to do this? How amenable are dogs to actually going into an MRI scanner? started, I had no idea how hard it was going to be or how easy it was going to be. So I teamed up with a dog trainer and we just started working through each of the elements of an MRI and actually started with my own dog as the first subject, um, mainly because we couldn't really go out and ask people to volunteer their dogs for this crazy project when we weren't even sure ourselves if it was going to work. Uh, but it did. You know, we, it took about two or three months to train one of my dogs to do this. She had the right temperament, but it wasn't as hard as we thought. And for individuals who've never actually uh, seen an MRI or, or been around an MRI, is this sort of a posing thing that dogs are, are not naturally inclined to be in, or humans for that matter? Well, certainly humans tend not to like these things. So an MRI is, is really like a, a big tunnel. And the thing that bothers people the most is the fact that it's quite claustrophobic because you go in on usually on your back and your your you know your nose is kind of like right in front of of nothing really it's just kind of coffin like and the other thing that bothers people is the fact that they're really loud and what they sound like is a jackhammer up close and so for dogs it's not so much the enclosed space that bothers them but certainly the noise does and I can't say whether they're more or less sensitive, but it was something that we paid a lot of attention to at the outset. And the way we did it was we simply recorded an MRI making the typical sounds that they make. And, and I would play 
recordings of these at home with my dog while I played with her and simply just got her used to being around that particular noise. And from there, it was just a matter of teaching her to put her head in a little chin rest and kind of crawl into the scanner and hold still. And why was it important for uh, the dog to be awake during your experiments? Well, two reasons. One is ethics. Um, So when we set out to do this project, I was very concerned about forcing animals to do things that they wouldn't want to do, and and really I I want nothing to do with any project like that. So we decided that we would treat the dogs like human subjects volunteering for experiments, meaning that if they didn't want to do it, they wouldn't have to do it. And so in order for us to be sure that they were doing it voluntarily, we couldn't sedate them and we would not restrain them either. So all of the training process is is designed to be fun for the dogs so that they enjoy uh, participating in this experiment with their owners and being in the scanner. And if they don't want to be there, they're free to walk out, and sometimes they do. The, the other reason why it's important is if we're interested in trying to figure out how dogs think, what they're feeling, how their minds work, then it would make no sense to sedate them. So, of course, we want them awake and, and fully who they are so we can figure what they're thinking. And, and how is it that uh, the MRI allows you to look at uh, the activity of the brain? So when we do MRI, it's more than just a typical clinical scan. It's what we call functional MRI. And so if if a clinical MRI, like if you had to go to the doctor and get an MRI of your, hopefully not your brain, but maybe uh, your spine, that would be like a, a photograph of the inside of your body. What we do is more analogous to a movie. So what we do is we take uh, pictures of the brain about every second while uh, a participant, whether it's a human or a dog, is engaging in some kind of task. And then after the fact, we can look at very small changes in the signal intensity, which is really just tracking blood flow. And the areas of the brain that get more blood flow are the ones that are more active at that particular time. And so the challenge is, is then designing experiments that we can interpret. And so many of our dog experiments are simply human experiments adapted for a dog. What kinds of experiments uh, can you run? So as we've gotten more experience with this and the dogs have gotten more experience, done progressively more complicated things. So some of the experiments that we've looked at is how does the dog respond to the relative uh, value of food versus just a simple praise like good girl. And, and that experiment was designed to test the hypothesis that dogs just do what they do for food. And in fact, what we found was that most of the dogs' brains responded as strongly to praise as food itself, and and some dogs even more so to praise. Another experiment that we did was looking at how they process information from our faces. And so to do that, what we did was we we put a a kind of translucent screen in front of them and projected images of faces of people and dogs as well as everyday objects so that they could look at that. And then we identified the part of the brain that was responding specifically to faces. And what that showed is that dogs uh, have much of the same hardware in their, in their brains as humans and other primates do. Because in humans, there's a specialized part of the brain, it's called the fusiform face area, that is dedicated just to processing faces. And so we found the same thing in dogs. Is this uh, uh, unique to dogs and primates? Well, prior 
to our experiments, it was thought to be unique to primates, so clearly it's not. And, and what I think it is is that any, uh, any animal that's highly social and has a need for looking at other members of, the, of its own species, or in the case of dogs, other species, has to have parts of its brain that are, that are dedicated to understanding and processing facial information. When you compare these type of experiments between uh, humans and dogs, are, are there any hardware differences that really jump out at you? I mean, in the question of what, what it's like to be a dog. Right. So probably the area that's the biggest is, is language. And so, you know, it's, it's undeniable that only humans have a sophisticated language, at least as we define it, meaning that we can use words as symbols for other things. And so that's kind of a, the key uh, thing to think about when we're talking about language and, and dogs and probably, as far as we know, no other animal has that. So one of the experiments that we've done recently is is have dogs in the scanner and have their owners speaking specific words to them to try to understand how exactly dogs make sense out of human speech because clearly they understand some things, but our results are showing that they're processing the words in, in ways that are really quite different than humans do using potentially different structures and and not really using it in a symbolic way like humans do. It could be the tone, but I think actually what's happening is that dogs are, are reasonably good at, at associating words, or maybe to them it's just specific sounds, with actions. You know, so we can fairly easily teach dogs to do things like sit and down and, you know, fairly complicated activities. But what they don't seem to have is the, is the hardware for representing the names of things like we do. So humans are very noun-based creatures. You know, we, we label everything. And it's not clear to us that, that other animals, you know, would care about the name of anything. They care about actions, for sure. But perhaps not so much the names of things, or even their own name for that matter. What about some of the sort of higher cognitive things that we sort of associate as being uniquely human? Do, do dogs possess any of those elements? Yeah, I think so. So we've done a few experiments along these lines. So uh, probably the most complicated experiment that, that we did about a year ago was this idea of a self-control or impulse control. And so there's this notion that in humans, we have you know, fairly large prefrontal lobes, which nobody's really quite sure what they're for, uh, but most people would say they're for things like social cognition as well as um, certain types of memory, as well as what we call executive function, which means the ability to plan for the future and the ability to inhibit, um, shall we say, our impulsive tendencies. So it's kind of the part of the brain that's necessary for delayed gratification. Now, dogs do not have very large prefrontal lobes. Um, they're also not necessarily known to be great masters of self-control either, so those are probably linked. But we studied this uh, by teaching the dogs actually to do a task that requires a little bit of self-control. And what we did was we first taught the dogs uh, to nose poke a little target in front of them when they heard a dog whistle. And that was relatively easy to do. And then after they learned that, we taught a hand signal, which was uh, arms crossed in kind of an X, which meant don't nose poke the target even when you hear the whistle. So it's the signal to put on the brakes. 
And so we had them do that in the scanner. And what we found was when they put on the brakes, we indeed saw that they had a little bit of activity in their prefrontal lobe in roughly the same spot that humans do when they do that sort of task. And what's interesting is not all the dogs were equally good at this. And so the dogs who had more activity there, as if they were deploying more of their frontal lobe, actually did better on the task, and they also did better on other tasks of impulse control when we took them outside the scanner. And so this is interesting because it, it mimics what we see in humans on these, these tasks as well, that people who have good impulse control, people who are good at delaying gratification, tend to use more of their frontal lobes, and, and they also tend to do better in kind of various aspects of life, believe it or not. Do you notice breed differences uh, in your studies? Only kind of crudely because we, ha we don't really have a good representation of a lot of breeds. We have a lot of retrievers in the study, in part because they're so popular and, and common, but also because they're very good at doing this sort of task, which is lying still in a scanner. Um, they don't have to do much. So we, we don't have kind of a scientific way to compare breeds because we haven't randomly sampled from one breed and another. But we can make some general observations that, that yes, the retrievers tend to be a little better at this sort of thing, and they differ a little, little bit from the dogs who came from shelters. Now, we don't know if the shelter dogs are the way they are because they came from shelters or because of their genetics. So that's, a, that's an open question, which, which we're very interested in figuring out. So what about other types of animals? For those cat lovers out there, do you think you could train a cat to go in there? You know, not, I think not a, a week goes by when someone asks me about doing a cat. And everyone says they have a cat who can do this, and, and I say, show me. <laughs> I haven't, but I haven't met a cat yet who would do this. But I, I do think there are other animals that we can train to do this. Um, I think pigs are certainly a possibility because they're quite intelligent, and I think they could also fit in the scanner. We're actually in discussions with some zoos as well to train uh, some giant tortoises to do this because they're not, they don't go anywhere and they have fairly large brains as well. So I think there are certain species that we could definitely do this and it would be quite easy. So uh, what, do you, what do you think your studies uh, then tell us now about the animal behavior compared to human behavior and, and how brains are structured to be different or, or the same? So I tend to look at these things through a lens of similarity. So, and I think that's important for interpreting what we're finding. So we can identify structures in animal brains across, across a wide range of species that are essentially the same structure. And, and by focusing on those, it allows us to identify a base from which to understand cognition, because we always have to refer back to our own subjective experiences. And so my operating principle is, is when we see activity in similar structures across species under similar circumstances, meaning we're perhaps showing basically the same stimuli or eliciting the same responses in a human than, say, a dog, and we see similar responses in corresponding parts of the brain, I think it's reasonable to interpret that as, as the animal or the dog, in this case, is experiencing something very similar to what we experience. So, and I, th I think that's the, the basis for proceeding to 
to interpret what it's like to be a dog. Eventually, you get to a point where uh, you, you study processes that are different, like language, and in humans where it relies on brain structures that perhaps don't exist in, in a dog, again, like language. But again, I don't know where that boundary is yet. So everything we're doing is, is uncovering a lot of similarities right now. Well, maybe to close on a, on a more philosophical note, do you think we'll ever know what it's like to be a dog in, in the same way that I'll never know what it's like to be you or you me? I do. I think that argument that we don't know what it's like to be another person is, is kind of a hollow argument because, in fact, we do know what it's like to be someone else because we're not that different from each other. And, you know, we're, we inhabit the same kind of physical structures, so there's a physical similarity. So it's very easy for a human to put, you know, oneself in another's shoes, you know, metaphorically speaking. And so it's very easy to imagine what it's like to be another person because we're so similar. Now, those, those similarities extend to other animals as well. So other animals have four limbs. I mean, they walk on, on uh, four limbs, but, you know, we being humans can voluntarily assume kind of similar postures and have an idea what it's like to crawl around on the ground and have that perspective. And if you take language out of the equation, you know, then I think what we're left with is, is a core of feelings that that actually does span across all species. And I think ultimately that's where feelings and emotions came from. That's what Darwin thought as well. It certainly is a fascinating new book, and certainly encourage everyone to go out and take a look at it. It's called What It's Like to Be a Dog, Another Adventures in Animal Neuroscience. And the author, Professor Gregory Burns. And uh, Professor Burns, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, my pleasure. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.